If you have your Bibles, we're going to end up in Acts chapter 6 and 7 today. Uh, We set out on a journey a year ago that we were going to study the book of Acts on and off together. We prayerfully have broken it into three parts. We're in part two today. We've got some pretty cool decor in the house that lays out kind of the book of Acts for us over here on the wall. We're calling this part of the story Church in the Wild. You'll understand the reason for that as we get into chapter 7 and especially chapter 8 that leads the gathered church that for three plus years since Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 has been experiencing the work of the Spirit, the power of God, the impact of the gospel in Jerusalem and the transition comes in 6, 7, and 8 as they now move out of that area into the next phase. Part 1, Acts 1 to Acts 6, we called Uncommon Community. Uh, We believe that church should not look like or act like a country club. Uh, It should be a place where you look at the room and go, if it weren't for the gospel, I don't think they would hang out. If it weren't for the gospel, it wouldn't make sense that they would go together. Uh, That's the idea of the local church. It is culturally diverse. It is ethnically diverse. It is a gathering of people who are from a diverse world outside the walls of it, who because of the Savior that is at work in it, have been brought in and made family. This is the beauty of what Jesus does. And so he brings together an uncommon family. He has a group of apostles that were gathered together. And Acts 1, being a continuation of Luke's gospel, in case you've not connected those two books, you've got Luke that rolls into Acts. Luke being the recording of Jesus' work on earth and being our substitute and atoning Savior on the cross, carries over now to the promise after his ascension of the Holy Spirit coming to inaugurate a church that would be scattered for his glory to the very ends of the earth. Earth, And that's the book we are in. In Acts chapter 1, this ragtag group of disciples and many others have seen Jesus appear for a 40-day period. He keeps popping up and he ain't dead. This is a big difficult thing for the Pharisees and Sanhedrin to deal with because they were sure he was dead when he was put into a tomb just a few days prior. Mark's gospel tells us that there were some guards that stood at the tomb 40 days prior, and they were paid off to lie. And everyone in the village knew that they were paid off to lie. And the guards were probably just happy that they got away with their life because the body that was in the tomb wasn't in the tomb anymore. And now the disciples of this Savior are running around town causing a muck speaking to the resurrected Savior as he shows up. So that's that's what we're going to see in this chapter. For 40 days he's been appearing uh, to uh, groups up to 500. Imagine this is an apologetic. Some doubted and didn't believe that he had risen from the dead, but he appeared to up to 500 at one time. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, if you don't believe my word and my testimony or the Apostle's testimony or all these other believers' testimony, you can go back to Jerusalem still when 1 Corinthians was written, ask people if there was a dude that was dead that came alive, that's name was Jesus, and they'll be like, yeah, it was crazy. He was dead. He was in the tomb. They sealed it. They had guards. All of a sudden, he was alive. It was a big ruckus, and everyone said, don't believe that. Don't look over there. It doesn't exist. It's aliens. Okay, that, that. That's a pretty good apologetic for the gospel. So it's coming to the end in Acts chapter 1 in this Uncommon Family series that we taught. Jesus said this, and this is an important promise to remember as we transition in Acts 6 and 7. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? 
He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. Let me get to the crux of the question. The question that the disciples were asking is, are we going to have to labor more? Is this still going to be tough? Are we still going to be opposed? Are we still going to be persecuted? Are we still going to have to struggle to live a godly life, to, to live a life that honors you? Or can we live on easy street because your king and your, king is, and your kingdom's here right now in its fullness? And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the point. The point is not for when do you get to retire. The point is not for when you get to be comfortable. The, the point is that you will be faithful until God says it's done, well done, thy good and faithful servant. I, I've been fielding a question recently consistently in email. And the question is, uh, usually referencing a verse out of context, uh, is this the end times where people are not going to be responsive to the gospel? Uh, I don't know where we've gotten this construct in our minds, but many a believer has started to, instead of go to the nations, withdraw from the nations to their own house. And instead of getting your boots on and being a faithful servant of God, I've seen many a believer that have retired from service to God, and they're just trying to play it easy until God says, come home. As if this is the idea that we've been called to. to. To be very clear, you are a light in darkness. That is your identity in the end times and however far or close we are to the end times. When it gets dark in the world, the light shines the brightest. Therefore, whenever we see darkness in our culture, it is the job of the believer, filled with the Holy Spirit, to run into that darkness with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we've got a good news for dark times. We're not to retreat. We're not to run away. We're to go into the world. We've been a commissioned people, a sent people. And so the question the disciples are asking is a question that many a believer is asking, and that is, does my faith actually have to carry over into every other aspect of my life where it will likely be met with opposition and persecution and me being isolated instead of me being praised? Because let's be honest, we are creatures of comfort, and we spend lots of money to stay comfortable. So this was a question. Can we, can, we, can we make it easy now? But there was a work that God wanted to do through them, and I want to submit to you that there's a work that God intends and desires to do through you, and it will not be comfortable, and it will not be easy, but it will be glorious in the end on the last day when we stand before God knowing that by his spirit we did the good work that he called us to. We fought the fight that he called us to. We ran the race that he called us to, and as a result, we can in confidence as a result of the work of Christ and his faithfulness in and through us be there on that day with joy knowing that we are going to hear as we look into our Father's eyes, well done, well done, well done. May that be your ambition. May that be your guiding strength. May that be the thing that gives you boldness because there is a real day coming where we will stand before him, where we will lock eyes for him, where faith will be done away with because we will have sight and we will see him and we will enjoy him forever. But until that day, get your boots on. As a sent people. Verse 8. Instead, instead of focusing on the comfort, instead of living like a civilian, as Paul would say later, you will receive power. Notice he doesn't say you will do good works. You will go and like live a moral life. That's, that's Christendom. That's us making something out of Christianity that was never intended to be. Christianity is a dependence and clinging on the Spirit of God to do the work of God in and through our lives that we cannot produce in and through ourselves. That's Christianity. It's not what can you do as you memorize Jesus' way. It's what can God do when you get out of his way. 
Are you tracking with me? Not even to the main part yet. We're already here. It's hot. Press in. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be. Is there a doubt in his mind that we're not going to get the right evangelism classes in place so that you can be equipped to be in a, Is there a doubt in his mind that, that you're not going to fulfill the mission that he sent and called you to? Is it, is it contingent on you being able to come through? I mean, think about this. Just 40 days prior, all 12 ran. One's dead because he betrayed Jesus and hung himself. Okay, Peter slicing ears off, cussing at girls over burning barrels. John, of course, is standing by Jesus' mother Mary. He's faithful, stoic, and strong, and he wants everyone to know it. Right? Thomas is probably off doubting something somewhere right now, 40 days prior. You'll be my witnesses. Ragtag, messed up, messy group of people will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. In Greek, it's really cool. In Greek, the word everywhere, it means everywhere. Sugar tit, Duncan, in your hood, everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, this promise was given, then 120 believers began to wait. But they weren't waiting with a meaningless waiting, they were waiting with a purposeful waiting. There's a lot we can learn in Acts chapter 1 about how to wait and be godly. Some of you right now are waiting because God has not opened the door that you desire for him to open. The question is, can you wait and be godly? Will you be patient because the joy of what you're waiting for is not something that God will give you, but the God who is with you? Or is God allowing the time for you to see that you've begun to idolize a future season of your life and a gift that you desire for him to give, that if he were to give it to you would not lead you into greater dependency and love of God, but would lead you away from the heart of God because you would love the thing over the giver of the thing. God made them wait. 120 believers, they waited. What did they do? They gathered together and prayed. You see, when you wait, praying is one of the most essential pieces of the waiting. It's God priming the pump of your heart to be ready for the move of what he desires to do. It's him getting you ready for a work of God and a move of God because you're sensitive to the voice of God as he moves in your life. They gather together and they pursue God in prayer and they did it, but get this, together. I'm all for you having a prayer closet, but if you don't have a prayer group, hmm. See, a lot of us, we got a lot of focus on our prayer closet and our prayer life, but the idea is that this would be a praying community. That you would, of course, go to the closet and get before God and make petitions and requests and thanksgiving and prayer. Of course, you need to have your own personal prayer life and not be dependent upon a select few to pray for you. But the idea is that we would be a community of prayer warriors together in our waiting. So they pursued him. They prayed together. They prepared together. They got the house in order. They appointed someone to replace Judas to come into his place. And as a result of that, they were preparing for a move of God. You see, you and I cannot make a move of God happen, but we can be preparing for a move of God to happen. Many of us aren't preparing with diligence as if a move of God will happen. And as a result of it, when a move of God does happen, we're on the outside looking in, wishing that we could be a part of a move of God, and all because we weren't waiting with intentionality, waiting in a way that was expectant. My question to you today is not in a season of your life, have you been called to wait, but are you waiting with expectation? Or are you just a practical atheist that's espousing words about a God that you don't actually believe is going to intersect or come into impact of your actual lifetime and living? 
They gathered and they waited. Acts 2, the story begins to change. The Holy Spirit comes. 120 that were gathered together, waiting, praying, and pursuing, began to prophesy. There were men and there were women, and they were prophesying. Just throwing that out there for some of you to chew on for a minute. <laughs> and as they prophesied, Peter, the speak first, put his shoe in his mouth person, steps forward and he delivers an incredible sermon. It begins with, we're not drunk, it's too early. Parts of the Bible Baptists want to edit. It was not the most eloquent sermon, but he took them on a gospel trip. There's a song back in the day, it goes, I'm going to take a trip on the good old gospel ship. And we'll go sailing. All right, sorry, All right, three people were with me. The rest of y'all, it's culture. It's a cool thing. Um, it happened on the back of the basketball buses while I was gone. They taught me rhythm, how to shake my feet, tap. It was really cool. Uh, anyway, big up to Reggie, Ray Ray, Jamarco. I love you. I appreciate you. Thank you. Um, He recounts the history of Israel. He comes to an invitation. He extends that invitation in Acts chapter 2, and 3,000 people are added to their number. That's called a good Sunday. At the end of Acts 2, we get a highlight of what this community looked like at its beginning. They were uh, together. They held everything in common. They loved each other well. They divided the burdens of life, and they multiplied the joys of life, and people found that community irresistible in Acts 2. Now, what, what you need to know is that when God moves, Satan counters. Satan is not an originator. He doesn't do anything that's new. He always is reacting to God. That's why whenever you have been saved by Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, and you are focused on his commission, you go to playing offense, and you stop having to play defense, trying to prove to everybody you're a Christian, and you just get to be one. See, the greatest attack that Satan ever has brought against all of us, and he did it against Jesus because he's not original, was he tries to get you to prove something that you already are. If you are the Son of God, then act. And for a lot of you, you're running around trying to prove your Christianity by which news station you watch, by how you vote, by, by the decisions you make, and you're pointing to rules as to why you're Jesus instead of the fruit of what Jesus does in your life when it's surrendered to him. And that's reason for concern. That should cause a little bit of worry in the room. If you got to point to like the one time you didn't chew and kiss girls that do, uh, like the four days you didn't smoke a cigarette and slug a guy or cuss whenever they cut you off and try, that's why I'm crazy. Is that really the proof? That's what we're hanging the hat on? Satan comes and counters. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested for preaching the gospel. Uh, they're later threatened to not preach in Jesus' name and released from prison. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles get arrested. Later, they get released. So there's a persecution and there are battles in Acts chapter 4 to Acts chapter 6 in the early story where we see people being arrested for preaching. Then, then we find out that just because you're saved doesn't mean you can't be hateful. Because you get to Acts chapter 6 and the Hellenistic Jews start getting overlooked whenever the supplies got low. The more native Jews, they got a little bit more bread. And it would slide off a little bit smaller of a piece. And at first it may not have been noticed, but it began to cause a rift in the community. Because everybody was all in and, and willing to share, but then some people started getting selfish in the sharing. Which is what Satan loves to do within the camp. Take secondary things that are not meant to be diminished or taken away as the believer, but to make them primary things that become distinctives within the church where there's not to be Jew nor Greek, male nor female. 
I know, I'll get in trouble if I keep going on that line. But my point, my point is this was the tension that we were seeing in the early church. God moving powerfully, persecutions and battles coming, and God giving them victory. By Acts chapter 6, at the end of this problem, the apostles decide instead of them holding and shouldering all of ministry, they would appoint some servants to step in and lead in ministry. One of them is a man named Stephen. We're told in Acts chapter 6, he was full of faith good standing. He was serving in obscurity before he was ever seen in the story. Many of you want a platform, a platitude, an achievement, an award. What you don't understand is that God elevates and lowers people. Paul, who we're going to meet in this story, is named Saul, which means big. He'll become Paul, which means small. In order for God to do great works through him, he's got to be a Paul. Some of you, the problem that's keeping you from the work of God through you so that you can do great things for the kingdom of God, which is what you say you desire to do, is that many of you still want to be big. You've not learned how to get small. You've not learned how to lower yourself, humble yourself. You see, God's plan for you first is that you would humble yourself under his mighty hand, be surrendered to his spirit and empowered for his work. But when you don't take his plan A, his plan B is to give you what you're asking for, which is humiliation that comes in the midst of you trying in your self-sufficiency to do a God-sized thing. So persecutions and battles come. Stephen's chosen, a man of God who had been serving likely in obscurity, now steps up. In Acts chapter 7, someone say he finally got there. Acts chapter 7, verse 51, uh, Stephen steps in and preaches a message that's just like the messages that Peter and the apostles had preached. He recounts the history of Israel to the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees that had spent their life memorizing the story of Israel. He talks about Abraham, he talks about Jacob, he talks about Joseph, he talks about Moses, he talks about David, he talks about Solomon, all pointing to the fact that all of those people were talking about in their day and time a Savior that was going to come and live the, death, live the life he couldn't live and die the death we deserve to die so that he could atone for our sins. In Acts 7, he concludes the sermon with this rousing moment, which for some of you, you've been mad at me before when I've been reading the actual Bible. Like, that's my favorite part. There are moments in my life where people get mad at me because I shared an opinion, right? Like, the Apostle Paul has moments where he's like, not God, but I say this. Like, that, that, that's distinguished in the Bible that at times Paul's like, I'm just giving you some of my conjecture, some of my thoughts that are in to it. And so there are times where you could disagree with me, like on the fact that Fox News is not Jesus News. Like, like you can disagree with me on that. You're wrong, but you can disagree with me on that. My point my point is there's a difference between that and whenever I'm reading the Bible, which is God's word to you, and you're like, I disagree with that. Well, it doesn't matter whether you think about that. That was not an opinion. That was God. That was his word. So if you're disagreeing with that, guess who you're disagreeing with, Thunder? You're disagreeing with God. He weighs the mountains on the scales and holds the dirt of the earth in a basket. So you go contend with him. That's where the complaints go. Acts 7 Stephen ends this sermon in front of this group after he's been arrested by saying, you stubborn people, this is going to go well, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. These are the Pharisees that are supposed to be leading and demonstrating what it looks like to live a godly life that he's speaking to. Keep in mind. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. 
They even killed the ones who pre- pre- uh, predicted the coming of Christ, uh, uh, the, the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. Okay. Acts 2 to Acts 6 covers three years of church history. Three to four years is what most the, uh, theologians believe. Up until this point, similar sermons like this have been preached over and over and over and over and over again. And when they've preached them, the people that resisted them were set aside. The people that heard it received the gospel, and thousands were coming to Christ every single time. The disciples, the apostles, the servants of the Lord were being obedient, preaching boldly the gospel, and lives in the literal city was being changed. Everywhere they went, okay? Let me give you an example. If you go back to Acts chapter 4, what got, Paul, uh, what got Peter and John in the pokey? Okay, if you go back to Acts chapter 4, quickly with me, what you'll see, Acts 4, 18, this is the end of the sermon before the Sanhedrin and the people that they were arrested by for healing a lame man who was sitting at the gate of the church but wasn't healed until Peter and John walked by and gave, the, gave him the power of the Holy Spirit, which then strengthened his body. He got healed. Put that in your cessationist pipe and smoke it. My point is, so they called... The apostles back in, that was not nice or friendly or helpful. I apologize. That was, that was I, not the Lord. But they, they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Okay. Romans 14 says that we are to be obedient to governing authorities. The tension here is we are to be obedient to the point of being disobedient to God. The problem in America is most of you think that your obedience to God is tied to mask mandates That's three years old. Yeah, you, you all demonstrated who you were really obedient to. You were, I'm going to be blunt. What the pandemic revealed was that a lot of us would rather have our comfort than be an effective witness in our culture. So we made hills on Christendom to die on where we married Jesus to a political candidate and divided up not only our community, but divided up what people's perception was of the kingdom of God. I am not a U.S. citizen first. I have had my citizenship changed. This is going to bother some of you. I already know it. I primarily am a citizen of a kingdom that is here and not now, that's here and not yet. That's, that kingdom is not a democracy. It has a king that sits on a throne. His name is Jesus. I live all over the world, perhaps under the leadership of that king for his agenda and his purpose, as an ambassador of his kingdom. I no longer identify as being a proud, just primary American. I love America. Trust me, I don't want to go nowhere. I don't. I really don't. I, I'm, not try, I'm not voting for Columbia. I'm not voting for, like, South Carolina or the country. I'm not voting. <laughs> That I be shifted around. I, 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 don't, I don't want to go anywhere else. I'm willing to because my citizenship and my identity belong to a king that goes over this kingdom of the earth. And he reigns over this one and the Ukraine and Russia and Africa and South America. He reigns over all of it. So I belong to him. It's not that I want to diss my country, but I'm not going to deify it as being the only place that God's at work in the world. Thank God. I want to be clear on this. Like, I want you to understand this. Like, where we are at, what, what we are called to do is to prioritize God's kingdom agenda in our life. And you, there's no room for your tertiary soapboxes. It just clouds the waters. Keep in mind, keep in mind, our mission is to take enemies and make them brothers. They are the mission. 
Well, you can't love God and do that. Exactly. And we speak up respectfully as kingdom citizens for a kingdom that is to come that is whole when we disagree. But we do it in his name and we do it by his power and we do it for his purpose. And we don't do it so that we can build our own platform. We don't do it so that we can become a political candidate. We don't do it so that we can shame our opponents. We do it so that we can see by the grace of God the conversion of Saul's who become Paul's. Don't forget your mission. Peter says, I cannot obey you over God. We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they let them go. Okay, so they preach a bold message to the Pharisees, to the Sanhedrin. They're let go. One chapter later, Acts chapter 5. I won't get on a soapbox on this one, maybe. Acts 5, verse 28 to 33. Didn't we tell you never again to teach in this man's name? We warned you. You're not to speak his name. Instead, you have filled all of Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Okay, so is Stephen's words that far off from this stuff? No. It's very similar. But what happens to Stephen is completely different, completely foreign to them. In Acts chapter 7, verse 54, after he preaches it, This is what happens. It says, The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. He told them, Look, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at the right hand of God. Then they pulled their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, do not charge them with the sin. And with that, he died. Okay. What's the point? Two things. Number one, you and I are not called to be fruitful in our results by our work. That <laughs> The harvest is always the Lord's. We get to harvest by obedience. Our job, our task by the Spirit of God is to be sensitive and open-handed to whatever direction he would lead us to go. Most of us prioritize results over obedience. We look at what we want as the end result, and then we try to prioritize how to get there the most efficiently and cost-effectively as possible. And that is not how God works. Sometimes you preach and thousands are converted, and sometimes you preach and you're killed for it. The point was not for you to be concerned with what happened on the other side of obedience. The point was for you to be consumed with being obedient. That's the whole idea. Many of us want the fruit. The fruit is produced when you abide in obedience. Well, I need a guarantee. I need a guarantee that I'll get what I want. Well, that's idolatry. Because what you want is not obedience and glory to the Father's name. And what you actually want and what's being revealed in your heart by your lack of obedience to doing what God has called you to do is an idolatry of something that's keeping you from God. Something that you put over God that's been created that you put in his seat and think that will fulfill and satisfy you. This this is the tension. Stephen does the same thing the apostles have been doing. He dies for it. They're heralded for it. 
The second thing we got to learn in this story as we transition into the second part of Acts as the church goes into the wild is that there are going to be large moments of your life where you're going to see God move providentially, which means you will not know what he's doing until you look in the rear view behind you. There's two ways God primarily moves in the Bible. There's the hand of miracles and there's the hand of providence. We now have made denominations that like one over the other. At this church, we refuse to deny one in favor of the other because the Bible is filled with stories of God doing both. In the Bible, there are times where your enemy is pressing down on you and God says, part. And the waters part and you go through on dry land and then you look back and your enemies get crushed and you're like, ha ha ha! Then you get on the other side of that area. You're learning to trust in God, and God moves in a sensational and amazing way. All of a sudden, biggie bags start falling out of the sky. And that's the hand of miracles. Most of us only have a theology that expects in our practice that God only moves that way. We just want God to move in that way. We want him to part the waters. We want him to heal. We want him to restore. And that's not always the way that God works, but there's a guarantee that God is always at work. So that again, God doesn't just do miracles. God's always at work, though. You may not see the work because you're in a season of providence. What's providence? Well, providence is the entire book of Ruth. There's no mention of God's intervention, yet God's all over the pages of it. There's not a moment where Ruth and Naomi are apart from the eye of God and the care of God. They show back up in town, hungry, starving, destitute, with no bright future, but it just so happened that it was the season of harvest. Providence. The people that are experiencing a season of providence don't necessarily see God at work, but you've likely had a season in the past of providence where you didn't think he was, and you look back and you're like, man, he was there, and he was there, and he took that and made that out of it. Do you understand the difference? Providence is seen in the rear view, but providence is one of the most consistent ways that God works. Nothing is wasted. There's no suffering. There's no tears. There's no pain. There's no heartache that you go through that Jesus doesn't redeem for his glory and good that will not lead to a peculiar praise at the last day where we stand before God and we lift the cup and exalt the name of Jesus and tell the stories of his faithful work over all of human history. Uh, 2020, uh, can we just say it? It sucked. I was living my dream. I was a radio DJ five days a week. 25,000 people a morning were listening to John Russ in the morning on 88.3 Life FM. I got to do everything I wanted to do. We couldn't go anywhere in public without being known. The church in 2018 went through a full-blown revival. We went for eight months baptizing every Sunday. Had 450 people that went forward in believers' baptism. We were seeing just God move in I mean, insane ways all around us. Praying for God to heal as a church collectively and seeing God move and heal people. It was powerful. The church had grown to a point where it wasn't comfortable anymore, kind of like Acts chapter 6. People were getting grumbly and frustrated, you know, over parking spots and stuff like that. Godly things. So we were working really hard. In 2018, as I was going out to... uh, go to the radio at 5 a.m., and then I was going to work a full day at, from, after I got off the radio at 9, which would lead to about 4.30 or 5. I would have eaten out dinner that night. Then we had an elder meeting that night that would have gone about three hours. So I'd have gotten home like 9.30, 10 that night. So it's in the middle of one of those. I'm walking out the house. My son's room was at the end of the stairs as I was going down. At 5 a.m., he rolled over and said, bye, Dad, see you tomorrow. 
and it, like all of it, crashed down. And I realized, man, I'm missing out on something that I can't miss out on. My kids are growing up, and I'm not here. And I've been called to be a follower of God and a husband to my wife and a dad before I've been called to be a pastor to a whole bunch of people in a church or a radio DJ or any of these other things. I'm replacing myself where I'm supposed to be irreplaceable. And so we started making changes. We stepped back from that. I took a sabbatical because I was burnt out and toasted from preaching four services a Sunday, getting back in a car, driving back and forth between multiple campuses and doing the whole megachurch thing. And we began to pray, God, if you have us here, would you restore us? And we felt God give us some energy in 2019 and 2020, and we were ready to roll all of it out. It all seemed perfect. We'd made a lot of hires. There was a staff of 28 that were gathered around helping to shoulder the blessed burden of ministry. It was going to be great. We were going to plant more churches. We had a thrift store that was going to do half a million so that we could give it to missions out of that thrift store to fund church planting. We've got to rebuild an entire seminary that got leveled in an earthquake. Just paid it in cash for local workers to rebuild it because God was blessing the church and it was growing and going. It was so exciting. It was everything we wanted. But I promised my wife in 2018 that if we ever got back to where we were, that I, I, I would step down and take that as a sign that God was leading us to go in a different direction. So by 2021, after a unifying election in our country, and things that we thought were absent but got put on film for everyone to see in our country. My church that I was a part of had gone through just such a battle and I felt the Lord say, I'm setting you aside. And I didn't know what that meant, but man, it was tough. My identity was built in being this pastor at this church and the opportunities that it afforded me. and I loved it. It was good. It wasn't bad. People were meeting Jesus. We were growing as disciples of Christ together. I mean, these were friends that we had sacrificed together in lifelong journey of following Jesus. Like, God knows second grade still on staff out at that church. But God made it clear, you're done. So I went back from vacation in 2021. I stepped down from the church that I was at, got COVID, and nearly died. At no point in that process of two and a half weeks, I lost 27 pounds. No one would help me. Couldn't get an IV, nothing, no medicine, nothing. Uh, at no point during that, that two-and-a-half-week period did I think, oh, God's working. <laughs> There's a God story happening here. No, I, I thought God was angry. I thought God was going to kill me because I was being disobedient. It's amazing the, heres the heresical, I just made that word up. It's amazing the bad theology that we have in the, in the face of suffering. Isn't it amazing how suffering just surfaces like all this bad non-gospel, like, like this man-made like karma crap that's in us. It's like, oh, we're getting something because God's mad. And we immediately forget that we are received because of Christ, that God is fully satisfied with us because of Christ. And it's because of Christ that we are constantly, good or bad in our minds as far as behavior, accepted before the presence of God and heard on the throne of God in our prayers. Yet here I am thinking, God's forsaken us. God's gone back in his promise for us. He doesn't love us anymore. I never forget, Morgan got me in a minivan. I went to an ER one night. They, they left me there for seven hours. No one came to saw me, see me. They forgot who I was multiple times. They're like, who are you again? Why are you here? I'm like, I'm dying. That's why I'm here. And no one's helping me. And they're like, all right, go sit in that closet with all these other sick people. And they're like coughing on me. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm like ready to fight. I'm about to, like, I'm about to turn into like uh, Denzel Washington when his kid's not getting the cert. Like, it's going to go down. Finally, I leave, and they're like, you can't leave. And I'm like, you can't keep me here. 
you're not helping me. And like, I signed this release. I signed the release. I'm dying. Morgan calls her sister and she's like, what do we do? And the, she gives some advice to go to this urgent care that she heard of. So we go to this urgent care. We get in the car. It's the first time I've seen the sun in two and a half weeks. And the Lauren Daigle song goes, comes on the radio. And it goes, when I'm not somebody I believe in. And for the first time in two and a half weeks, the Holy Spirit just floods me. And I go, oh, man. I couldn't see it. But God, I know you're here. I know you're in the story. I know you're not done. I started for the first time in two and a half weeks. It's amazing. Like when you become addicted to worshiping God, it's amazing. When you go two and a half weeks not getting to worship because you're so sick that you can't move, that you, you get it. Man. Hmm. I had no clue what God was doing. Last week we announced that we were able to purchase the ten and a half acres next door to us. Uh, that God has grown the church to a point that we no longer can rent and lease a facility because we've run out of leasable space. Y'all keep being faithful to the commission of being fruitful and multiplying to the point that we need kid space because your kids are right now making a human ladder to go and fetch a ribbon that they stuck to the ceiling tile. I apologize in advance. I look at where we are now. Not to forget the relationships and the gifts that God has given me, but I look and I see, man, God, in what seemed like a season of scattering, you were actually fulfilling your call for us to go to the nations. You were giving us a new season and a new door that we weren't asking for, not expecting, but it was for your glory and your good. And I can see it now when I look back on 2020 and 2021 and everything that's there, but I couldn't see it then. And I just want to submit to you that some of you today are in a season of providence where in a few years, if you will hold on, you're going to see where God was at work in ways that you cannot see right now in your suffering and pain. But I can promise you this. It may not be a miracle you see, but there's a God that's at work right now in your life. He's not done. He's not done. You may be scattered. You may be confused. You may be struggling. You may be suffering. But it's not meaningless. It's not absent from his presence. But we have a promise that in his providence, he is working all things for the good of those who love him according to his will and purpose. So hold on because God's not done. In Jesus' name, amen. Our prayer team's going to come forward. If you need prayer because you're in a difficult season, would you give us the honor of praying over you? And if not, would you stand to your feet and sing this praise in seasons of difficulty of how we've seen a faithful God at work in us? Let's sing and then we'll see some people get baptized to close.